to my heart. I have a teaching called Hell's Best Kept Secret and this true and false conversion teaching follows hard on the heels of that particular teaching. The American Horizons magazine, uh, uh, the magazine, the official magazine of a major denomination in the United States, 11,500 churches, in March, April, published statistics of what they called the Decade of Harvest. This was the first year of the Decade of Harvest, the results of evangelism in 1991. They found that they, they received, or into the churches, 294,000 decisions in 1991. 294,000 decisions they obtained. But they found that only 15,000 remained in fellowship. That's something like 279,000 they couldn't account for. And these statistics are normal for modern evangelism. And this is simply because the church has forsaken the use of the law and its converting capacity. The essence of the Gospel proclamation of Charles Spurgeon, Wesley, Finney, Moody, Whitfield, Luther, they all said, use the law before grace. The law came by Moses, and grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Keep it in that order. Will the law bring the knowledge of sin? Would the law break the hard heart? And would the gospel heal the broken heart? Law to the proud, grace to the humble. It's very simple. Why? Because God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Charles Finney said, Evermore the law must prepare the way for the gospel. To overlook this in instructing souls is almost certain to result in false hope, the introduction of a false standard of Christian experience, and to fill the church with false converts. Wesley said of those who didn't use the law in evangelism, they did not use the Ten Commandments to show the sinner what sin was. He said, all this proceeds from the deepest ignorance of the nature, the properties, and the use of the law, and proves that those who act thus are either known or Christ, are either strangers to living faith, or at least they're but babes in Christ, and as such, unskilled in the work or word of righteousness. Martin Luther, in his commentary of Galatians, which is the book that speaks of freedom from the law, said this, Satan, the god of all dissension, stirs up daily new sects. And last of all, which of all other I should never have foreseen or once suspected, he has raised up a sect as such teach that the Ten Commandments ought to be taken out of the church and that men should not be terrified by the law but gently exhorted by the preaching of the grace of Christ. So what Luther was saying in his commentary of Galatians, freedom from the law, he was saying, hey, there's a satanic sect that started up, a doctrine that Satan has raised up. He said, I could hardly believe it. He said, of which all other I should never have foreseen or once suspected, that men ought not to be terrified by the law, but gently exhorted by the preaching of the grace of Christ, which perfectly describes modern evangelism, something Martin Luther saw as a satanic subtlety. Spurgeon said, they will never accept grace until they tremble before a just and holy law. George Whitfield said, that is the reason we have so many mushroom converts, because their stony ground is not plowed up. They have not got a conviction of the law. They are stony ground hearers or false conversions. Let's look at Romans 7 verse 4 and read it together. Wherefore, my brethren, you are also become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. 
In the book Hell's Best Kept Secret, there is an anecdote, a story, of a young speedster who drove through a town at a dangerous speed of 120 miles an hour. He was drunk, there was no law against speeding, it was an old-fashioned town. So the town council gathered together, passed a law stating that 60 miles an hour was the maximum speed. Came back through again, drunk as a skunk, 120 miles an hour, they picked him up, tried him, found him guilty, and he was fined $6,000 by the town's judge, his only judge, his own father. He had no money, no words of defense, he was thrown off into prison, thrown in prison. A short time later, the father arrives at the prison, and to his son's unbelief, unlocks the door and says, you're free to go. And then he related to him that he had sold all his goods as well as his own prized horse, it was just a farming community, to raise the $6,000 so the son could be free. Now, once the son walks out of the prison, what's his attitude to the law? Does he owe anything to the law? No, the law is totally satisfied by the sacrifice of the father. The father's paid the fine, the son can smile at the law, he can walk out of the courtroom. The law has no demand upon him. He's dead to the law. And what should his attitude be to his father? Well, he should bring forth the fruit of a new lifestyle, a lifestyle that's pleasing to his father. He should be law-abiding, motivated by love and gratitude towards his father. He says, Dad, you did that for me. I'm not going to lay rubber up and down the street. I'm not going to displease you. I'm going to be law-abiding. That's the attitude of the Christian. Listen to Romans 7 verse 4 again. Wherefore, my brethren, you also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ. That was the sacrifice. The law was satisfied when the Father provided the sacrifice through the Son, the Lamb of God. The law was satisfied. We can smile at the judge of the universe. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. That you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Now that we've seen the sacrifice of the Father, now that we've seen how much our Father loves us, we say, oh, Father, I'm going to keep the law. I'm going to be law-abiding. I'm not going to lust, I'm not going to steal, I'm not going to lie, I'm not going to covet, I'm going to put you first, I'm going to set aside a day just to worship you in spirit and in truth, I'm not going to blaspheme, I'm going to honor your name, I'm going to have a right attitude to your character. We're going to be law-abiding. We're no longer going to be workers of iniquity. Let everyone that names the name of Christ depart from lawlessness. The godly bring forth the fruit of a new lifestyle which is pleasing to God. The Bible says in Proverbs 12, 12, the root of the righteous shall bring forth fruit. If we're rooted and grounded in Him, it should be evident. John 15, verse 15, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. Colossians 1, 10 says, even the gospel that brings forth fruit in you. Well, what does the Bible mean by fruit? Well, number one, the fruit of repentance. Matthew 3, verse 8. Fruit of repentance. Zacchaeus said, Lord, if I've wronged anyone, I'll pay him back fourfold. He said, I'll give half my goods to the poor. Fruit of repentance. He was just showing the Father. He was showing the Lord how grateful he was. It was com coming from gratitude. Repentance is more than just tears. I read it in a newspaper years ago where it said the store had outside its doors a brown paper package on a Monday morning and a note inside with a pair of pants and it said, I stole these from you Friday, became a Christian Sunday. Here's the pants Monday, I am so sorry. Fruit of repentance. Right. Two, the fruit of good works, Colossians 1 verse 10. John Wesley said, do all the good you can 
by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. Years ago, I would have been considered a fanatic. In fact, I still am. I haven't changed one ounce. There is a fire burning with my bones. I don't care what people think. And I used to make jackets, leather jackets to people with suede coats and jackets for 10 years. I followed in my father's footsteps. The first person to ever make a leather jacket was God. He clothed Adam and Eve in skins of animals. And not this caveman stuff. Covered buttons, fully lined. Vent, double vent. Class! When God does something, He does it properly. And I put this in a little brochure. I says, I'm following in my father's footsteps. And I went through the gospel. God provided a covering for those that couldn't cover themselves with fig leaves. And, and, and a type of the gospel. God slaying an animal, shedding blood to provide a covering. And I put that in my brochure for the books. A hurried Krishna came to the Lord around that time. And uh, he was very, he had a wig on. He was, uh, before it was uh, kind of trendy to be Hare Krishna. He had a wig on. He was just giving out literature in the street. We stopped, witnessed to him, shook his hand and left. And when he got saved, within 15 minutes of giving his life to Christ, he was eating a T-bone steak. <laughs> Whom the Son sets free shall be free indeed. And we says, what was it that brought you around? I mean, what really touched your heart? You know what he said? He said it was the handshake. He just felt something in the handshake. Something since the God touched his heart. Anyway, I found out that he was a sign writer. These signs will follow them that believe. So I says, I want you to do me a sign. And you see, I had this big window on the store. And the shop window was about 10 feet deep, 8 foot wide. I says, I want to get a big board. I want you to put the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 1 to 16 on the actual board. And I put it on my window. He was doing these signs night after night. It took so long. And he says, one day, one night he was doing a sign. He's very depressed. He's about, uh, through, he's about verse 3. It had taken about three nights of just doing these signs methodically, about 15 minutes just to do one letter. And he stepped back and looked at it and it said, No man can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And he was greatly encouraged as God quickened that word to him. <laughs> I put it on the window. There was no natural light because on the doorway I had, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. In other words, he that comes to me will no ways cast out. And I shared a doorway with a barber. And around that time, I got into drug prevention work, and I published a book called My Friends Are Dying. It got a lot of publicity. And one day, the barber says, come here, Ray, I want to talk to you. He said, guys would come into my store, and they'd say, give me a shave, trim the back, will you? And they'd just say, man, what a fanatic next door. And they couldn't say any more. They were so disgusted by the fanaticism. But he said, after you put out that book, trying to help people stuck on drugs, he said, the same guys are coming in, sitting down and saying, Doing a good job, that young man next door. Now, you know what was happening? This is what was happening. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15 says, For so is the will of God, that by your well-doing, you'll put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Good works are a legitimate tool in evangelism. And sadly, much of the evangelical church has looked at organizations that started with blood and fire, street preaching, got into good works and became social and lost the blood and the fire. And they've said, no, we'll just steer off good works. But if you read the book of Titus, again and again it says things like, let those of you who have believed in God be careful to maintain good works. Let your light shine that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Good works are a legitimate tool in evangelism. And I saw this was happening. These guys were getting their mouths stopped 
By your well-doing you put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So I saw legitimate, it was legitimate to use good works in evangelism. So I went to a, a marketplace and I said to a, an owner there, I said, I want to give vegetables away to the community around our local church. A hundred houses, I want to give them a bag of vegetables just to let them know we care. I said, would you supply us? He said, we will give you double what you want in each bag. If you let us put our name on the bag, I said, go ahead. So they gave us a bag of vegetables for two dollars. It was about three feet high, packed full of corn, cabbage, potatoes, all these different vegetables. Then we put a letter on the top, and the letter just said something like this. Dear neighbor, it didn't say greetings in the precious name of Jesus. There was nothing Christian about it. Dear neighbor, we're really concerned for you as you live in the local area. and We just want to help you in any way we can. We're here for your benefit. If we can mow your lawns, trim your hedge, help you in any way, just give us a call. Yours faithfully. We just signed it. I said to the guys, putting the bags at the houses, don't go and knock on the doors. Don't give them the impression we're trying to get a foot in the door. Just put them at the driveway and leave before anyone can talk to you. You know what happened? As soon as we delivered those vegetables, we started getting telephone calls. One lady burst into the tear, tears on the phone. She says, I've never had anything like this happen to me before. One other person said, I've lived in this area 60 years, and this is the first time a local church has ever done anything for me. Isn't that a reproach? One lady, she looked at it. She says, I couldn't believe they were mine. Two dollar bag full of vegetables. One, we were stopped on the street. People burst into tears. They just said, that was just wonderful. One guy wrote us a letter. He says, I am an atheist, but I wish you well in the community. <laughs> Another guy, his girlfriend made a commitment to Christ. She told us that he hit the wall in anger. But he, he was an evident token of love that he couldn't argue with. And it just frustrated him. It's so legitimate. And you, you don't have to give vegetables away to people. If you've got, you want to reach your family, just do the dishes when you've never been asked to do the dishes. You know, never been, you just do them. You do, mow the lawns. You just become rich in good works. And you'll blow people away. They'll see the evidence of your faith so that you don't have to preach to them. Number three, we're looking at fruit of a genuine convert. Hebrews 13 verse 15, the fruit of thanksgiving. The Christian has seen the cross and he says, thanks be unto God the unspeakable gift. Four, fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5 verse 22. We should have love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, faith, meekness, and temperance. And number five, Philippians 1 verse 11, the fruit of righteousness. We should do that which is right as Christians. Matthew 3 verse 10 says, Every tree that does not bring forth good fruit is cut down and cast into the fire. So what we must do as Christians is not just aim at church members, youth group members. We should aim at fruit-bearing Christians. That is our goal. We want to see Christians who bring forth fruit as evidence of their salvation. Now get an, to get an insight into what hinders and what produces fruit, let's look at Mark 4 verse 3. Mark 4 verse 3. We're going to look at the parable of the sower. Now when Jesus said, or the Bible says something important, it will begin with the word hearken, or even behold. And they're like little trumpets that Jesus used to say, behold. In other words, listen. There's a little trumpet. But here in the parable of the sower, we see the words hearken and behold together. This is so vital. This is so important. Jesus puts a little double trumpet here. It says, listen. There went out a sower to sow. And it came to pass, as he sowed, 
Some fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it. And some fell on stony ground, where it had not much depth of earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. Another fell on good ground, and it did yield fruit that sprang up and increased, and brought forth some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said to them, He that has ears to hear, let him hear. And go to verse 13. And he said to the disciples who didn't understand the parable, He said, no, you, Don't you know this parable? Know you not this parable? How then will you know all parables? And then he gives the interpretation. The sower sows the word. These are they by the wayside when the word is sown. But when they have heard, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. And these are they, in the like manner, that are sown on stony ground, who when they have heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness, but have no root in themselves, and so endure but for a time. Afterward, when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. And these are they that are sown among thorns, such as hear the word, and the cares of this age, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts of other things, entering in, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And these are they that are sown on good ground, such as hear the word, and receive it, and bring forth fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some hundred. May God give us ears to hear what he's saying. Verse 13, look at it. Jesus said, Don't you know this parable? How then will you understand all parables? In other words, the parable of the sower is the key to unlock the mystery of all the other parables. Once we get an understanding that the parable of the sower is about true and false conversion. The stony ground hearer, the thorny ground hearer, false, the good soil hearer. True conversion. Once we understand that when the gospel is preached and ones make commitments, there are true and false conversions, then that is a key to unlock the mystery of the other parables. The foolish virgins, false conversion. Wise virgins, true conversion. The wheat and the tears, the true and false. The good fish and the bad fish, the true and false. The man who built his house on rock and the man who built his house on sand, true and false conversion. I just think the man who built his house on sand was the unsaved. Now look at what Jesus said. He said, whoever hears my sayings and does not keep them are likened to a foolish man. The ungodly don't hear the sayings of Jesus. It's the professing godly that sit in the church and hear Jesus say things. He says, and Jesus said, why do you call me Lord and do not the things that I tell you? And there are multitudes. They don't go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. They don't preach the word in season and out of season. Jesus said, you're my witnesses, and they're not. He says, let your light shine before men, and they don't. They're the ones who built their house on sand, and when the storm comes, they're the ones that will crumble. Now what we're going to do is using the harmony of the Gospels, because the parable of the sower is also in Matthew 13 and Luke 8, we're going to look at six characteristics of a false conversion. The stony ground hearer in particular. Number one. These are the signs of a false conversion. According to Mark 4 verse 5, there are immediate results. They don't weigh the issues. The preacher says something like, you need to have assurance of heaven. You need to give your life to Jesus. You need to find true peace. And so they say, yeah, that sounds cool. I'll give that a go. They don't weigh the issues. Jesus said no one goes to war without checking out what the enemy's got. No one builds a tower without seeing if he's got the materials. There are immediate results. Two, there is a lack of moisture. 
according to Luke 8 verse 6. There is no thirst for God, for the living God. Number three, there is no root in themselves, Matthew 13 verse 6. There is no depth of godly character. Number four, they receive the word with gladness, Mark 4 verse 16. There is no contrition, no sorrow. Number five, they receive the word with joy, according to Matthew 13 verse 20. And number six, for a while they do believe, and this is where there's confusion. The false convert does have a genuine false conversion experience. For a while he does believe. Now I want you to draw your attention to the picture. This one here of the plant, the big plant, that looks pretty healthy and beside it in the, in the garden is a little plant that doesn't look too big and it's not that impressive. And if you had to make room in your garden, most of us would probably say, well, if I'm going to get rid of any plant to make room, it'll be that little one because the big one's looking so healthy and so good. But then the sun comes out and you see that your healthy plant is beginning to wither and the little plant is beginning to prosper. And you say, why is that? And then the third illustration shows us why. Underneath the soil of the big plant, there is bedrock. There is shallow soil that it has its roots in. The little plant had a large root system that was seeking moisture. And the goodness that should have been going down into the root system was actually being pushed up into the leaves and the branches, making it look impressive. Now can you see that it was the sun, the sunlight, that revealed what you and I couldn't see, the soil condition of the plant. Let me repeat that. Can you see that the sun revealed what we couldn't see under the soil? The condition, the soil condition of the plant. Now in the spiritual, the plant is the regenerate life of the professing convert. The soil is his heart, something we can't see. According to Jesus, the sunlight in the spiritual is tribulation, temptation, and persecution. Tribulation, Matthew 13, 21. Temptation, Luke 8, verse 13. And persecution, Mark 4, verse 17. These three factors reveal what you and I can't see in the heart of the professing convert. Just as the sun revealed the hidden soil condition of the plant that was faulty, so the sunlight of tribulation, temptation, and persecution reveals in a new convert what you and I can't see the heart condition. Now if you buy a house plant, costs you a lot of money, the worst thing you can do is shelter that plant from the sunlight, isn't it? You say, man, this cost me 15 bucks. I'm going to put it in a cupboard where it's nice and warm and dark. No, it will die. The best thing you can do for that plant is give it access to plenty of sunlight. Rotate it so the sun gets to it, the sunlight. Make sure it's in good soil and make sure it's got access to moisture and that plant will grow if it's good seed. In the same way, the worst thing you and I can do for any convert is shield him from the sunlight. He's just given his heart to Jesus. Let's keep him free from his old friends. Keep him away from the drug addicts and the homosexuals, those prostitutes. Keep him. No, you're shielding him from the sunlight. If he's genuine, the best thing you can do is let him have access to the sunlight. Because if he's genuine, he's going to grow. If he's false, he's going to wither. The sunlight of tribulation, persecution, temptation will prosper the genuine convert but cause the false convert to wither and die. When Russia was in persecution a number of years ago, two Russian guards burst into this prayer meeting. They were fully armed and they said to those Christians professing, they said, you get out of here if you're not prepared to die for your faith. 
Half those professing Christians left. The other half just sat there. And then the guards put their guns down and said, well, praise the Lord. We just, we're Christians. We wanted to sort out the sheep from the goats before we'd risk fellowship. Now, if there was a Russian guard clean out of the church, what would happen? Number one, the church would be rid of murmurers, complainers, those that cause division. Now, God doesn't often use Russian guard clean out. He often just opens up the ground and swallows them up. That's one thing. There would be, it would it immediately clean the church, severe persecution. But secondly, and more important, a Russian guard clean-out, severe persecution coming to the church, would show the stony ground hearer the error of his ways. It would reveal to him that he can't handle it, there's something wrong within his heart, he'd wither and die. It would show him where he stands before the day of judgment. Can you imagine propping someone up? Okay, you led someone to Jesus, you witnessed to them, you said, hey, you have a God-shaped vacuum in your heart, only God can fill. Give your heart to Jesus. He'll give you peace, help your marriage, help your problems. So you pray with a person, they give their heart to Jesus. And there's a change. He stops drinking alcohol and he stops swearing. He comes to church. But there's no zeal for the lost, there's no hunger for the Word, so you read the Word to him. He doesn't get to fellowship, so you pick him up. He doesn't get to prayer meeting, so you pick him up. You kind of prop him up in everything he does, because he just hasn't got it together. It's your job to prop him up. And you prop him up for his whole lifetime, right up until Judgment Day, when the sunlight of an omniscient eye of Almighty God shines upon him and reveals that guy was a hypocrite, that he was a false convert. Whose fault is it that he was propped up all the way to Judgment Day? Best, stand back, let the sun shine on him. Let him fall. Let him know where he stands. Don't give him a sense of assurance that he shouldn't have. Don't shield him from the sunlight. Best to let him be exposed, and if he doesn't grow, it's the root system of his heart. For years I put my energies into those who proved to be stony ground hearers with questions like, are you reading your Bible? And they say, oh man, I'm just so busy. I've got TV guide. I've got this and that to get through. And say, are you getting into fellowship? No, i got a football game this Sunday. You know. No, no, if thou soundly saved, they won't look back. Jesus said, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom. Luke 9, verse 62. If they look back, there's something wrong with their heart. If they go back, it proves there was something wrong. Most of the people we call backsliders never backslid. They, they didn't slide forward in the first place. That's a false conversion. That's what it is, a stony ground hearer. Now, if someone's soundly saved, they will desire the sincere milk of the Word. The first thing I knew I had to do when I got saved was read the Bible. I just knew it. See, a healthy lamb will have a healthy appetite. I come from New Zealand, 70 million sheep, 3 million people. I know about sheep. If a mother sheep dies, there's a lamb you have to feed with a bottle. It just about eats the bottle up. There is a natural, healthy appetite in a healthy lamb. If you have to force feed the lamb, something's wrong. It's sick and will probably die. The Bible says, desire the sincere milk of the word if you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. If there's no desire, there isn't probably a taste that the Lord is gracious. Someone who is soundly saved will forsake not the assembling of themselves together, as does the manner of some. They will get into fellowship. They'll know they're passing death to life because they love the brethren. When Jesus said, and it means ready for use, the soil of his heart was turned. You see, that's the function of the law, to turn the soil of a man's heart. Many of today's Top evangelists aren't too concerned that there's an 80% fallaway rate in converts. Why? Well, they believe that it's biblical to lose 75% of those making a decision for Christ. 75% fallaway rate is normal biblical evangelism. Billy Graham believes that. He was interviewed by David Frost. David Frost said, And what is it that you're thinking about when you, when you see all those people come forward? 
And he, Billy Graham said, and I admire and respect Billy Graham as a man of God. He said, well, I'm, I'm thinking that only one in four is genuine. And he cited the parable of the sower. But I don't think the parable of the sower was given as a, as a consolation for disappointing evangelical results. I think it's given for our instruction, and there are keys. If you study the parable of the sower, you'll see there are three false conversions. You'll see the good soil hearer had virtues that the other two didn't have. The virtue of understanding and the virtue of a good and honest heart. Oh, so out in society, in the world, in the field of the world, there are ones who have kind of been born with understanding and with a good and honest heart. No, that's not biblical. The Bible says there is none that understands, Romans 3. There is none that seeks after God, and the human heart is not good. It's desperately wicked. There's none good. No, not one. Therefore, those virtues that the good soil hearer had, the virtues of understanding and the virtues of goodness of heart, didn't come from within his heart. They came from without. What is it that produces understanding? It's the schoolmaster. Remember, Paul said the law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The purpose of a schoolmaster is to bring knowledge, to bring understanding. The good soil here understood because of the law. Paul said, I had not known sin but by the law. By the law is the knowledge of sin. God said, my people are destroyed through lack of knowledge of my law. The commandment is a lamp and the law is light. The law brings the light of understanding. I had no understanding of the things of God until I saw the requirements of God's law. When I understood that if you looked at a woman with lust, you commit adultery in your heart, and I'd broken the law, then I saw the necessity for the sacrifice of the cross. Once I understood as a sinner, I said, I can now understand why Jesus died. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. So what the law does is it turns the soil of a man's heart, exposing the stones of sin that are removed via repentance. Then he can receive the engrafted word which is able to save the soul. So what I'm saying is with the help of God using weapons of warfare, not carnal but mighty through God of pulling down the strongholds, we can determine the soil condition that we're going to plant the incorruptible seed upon. It's called basic farming. Any farmer will tell you, don't get good seed and waste it on stony ground. No, you take the time to remove the stones, turn the soil with a spade. It takes a bit of effort, takes a bit of time, but if you want the seed to grow, it'll grow. Now God says the human heart is like stone. I'll take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. You can take the seed of the gospel, that pure, unadulterated seed of the Word of God, and cast the gospel on the unregenerate heart. It'll not bring forth fruit. We must take the time to turn the soil of the unregenerate heart with the law. Then it can receive the engrafted word which is able to save the soul. Remember what George Whitfield said? That is the reason we have so many mushroom converts. Spring up, disappear converts. Because their stony ground is not plowed up. They have not got a conviction of the law. They are stony ground hearers. Does that make sense what I'm saying? A friend of mine came to see me once. Nice guy, went to our church. He said, Ray, I don't have what you guys have. I kind of lack zeal in my life and a few other things. I said, Richard, I said, you've got love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, faith, meekness, and temperance. And he said no to eight fruits of the nine fruits of the Spirit. Well, I said to him, well, from your own confession, there's no evidence to prove that you're a Christian. Now, at that point of time, he did exercise the fruit of self-control because he said later he felt like rearranging my face. <laughs> but he didn't. 
He went home, examined himself to see if he was in the faith, concluded there was no fruit, that he wasn't, got on his knees, repented, and within three months he had borne such fruit for God that he was entrusted with a coffee bar outreach for our whole church. Colossians 4 says this, verse 5, Walk in wisdom towards them that are without, redeeming the time. You see, a stony ground hero will steal your time for you, from you. Walking wisdom toward them that are without doesn't mean necessarily those who are without the church building. A stony ground hearer can be within the church building, sitting in the pew next to you, but he is without the body of Christ. And a stony ground hearer will suck you of your time, redeeming the time for the days of evil. That's why you should walk in wisdom toward them that are without. Satan wants to wear down the saints. He wants to get you involved in counseling people. When a lot of people don't need counsel, they need repentance. You see, you can take that plant that's beginning to wither and say, oh, the plant's withering. Quick, bring buckets of fertilizer and you fertilize it to the top leaf. It's not going to help it. The problem isn't here. The problem is here. It doesn't need fertilizer. It needs good soil. And the stony ground here doesn't need the fertilizer of counsel. He needs the good soil of a repentant heart. It's as simple as that. I just say to people, they come to me and I think, oh, it could be a stony ground hearer here. So you read the Bible every day? No. Well, that's your problem. So there's no discipline in your life. Say so there's no fruit to show that you're saved. You're living in adultery. Your language is disgusting. You need to repent. You need to get right with God. If a professing brother doesn't listen after the first and second admonition, I just avoid spending time with him. I'm not horrible to him. I just don't give him my time. I put my energies into the unsaved. I'm not going to try and wipe noses at people in the lifeboat when people are drowning around me. I had a pastor that I was... Uh, is a large church, pastor of a large church. He was a senior pastor. A real godly man. His name is Peter Morrow. Loves the Lord. But I'm going to tell you what he was physically like for a point. He was very thin. He was about five... Five, five foot eleven, he's still five foot eleven, but he weighed about 110, 120 pounds. He used to joke that he ate like a horse and never put on weight. And he must have his glorified body already or something. <laughs> he was so thin he would joke about it. He had only one stripe on his pajamas. He had to run around in the shower to get wet. I mean, he was so thin. Very frail man. But a real shepherd's heart. Just love God with all his heart. I'm not a shepherd at heart. You know, I, I, I get impatient when people want counsel. Some people, God's given them the gift of sitting there and they'll just listen and listen and listen. God's gifted different people within the body. My heart's desire is to get out with the unsaved. But this guy has got the mantle of a pastor, just loves God. One night there was a knock on the door at 3 a.m. The guy standing there says, can I see your father? I want some counsel. The son says, okay, because he opened the door. He says, I'll go and get dad. You go and wait in the living room. Send the guy in the living room. He woke his dad without hesitation because he knew his father was a shepherd. He wouldn't mind getting up just to counsel someone at 3 a.m. And told his dad, there's a guy in the living room. The pastor walked into the living room, and as he did, a 14-inch blade machete come down across his face, sliced his finger, sent blood around the walls. This guy hacked into him so many times. His two sons heard him screaming, ran into the room. They thought their father was dead because there was so much blood around the walls. He was just lying there covered with blood. They grabbed the guy and they just about killed him. He was screaming, I can't breathe, and they just said, die. The father lived. 
He got so many transfusions of blood, you wouldn't believe, like a hundred pints or something like that. It was just, but he lived and his scars have healed. This happened probably five or six years ago. The next day, a pastor called me, a pastor friend. He said, you hear about last night? I said, whoa, heavy. He says, heavy. He says, you listen to this. The guy that did that was one of my flock. He just felt so bad. And then the pastor said this statement, and listen carefully. He says, I couldn't believe it. That another Christian would do something like that. And I says, hang on. I says, if a guy tries to decapitate the pastor, you can probably conclude that he's lacking a little bit in the area of love, goodness, gentleness. Isn't that right? If you try and cut the head off your pastor, you're lacking a little bit in the area of love, goodness, and gentleness. And saints, it's about time the church took seriously what the Bible says. The Bible speaks of false brethren twice. False apostles, false prophets, false teachers, and false conversions. And I do not welcome someone into the faith just because they've given their heart to Jesus. I want to see fruit. I want to know that the soldier who's walking behind me with a fixed bayonet believes in the cause that he's on our side. Now, right? I mean, if you're in an army, you don't want a guy marching behind you, bayonet fixed, see on our side. I want to know he's on our side, that he believes in the cause. And I don't give my heart or trust someone just because they give their heart to Jesus. Years ago, I wished I'd had a video camera because this day I saw the classic false convert. I was going to cross the street when suddenly I stepped back because I heard a terrible noise coming down the street. It was a car in the middle of the road, breaking the law, had no muffler, it was so noisy, it was going too fast. Oh, this guy is dangerous. Jumped off the road. Suddenly the guy drove past, slammed on the anchors of his car. He backed up because he recognized me. He says, Ray, can I see you for, for counsel? This was the classic stony ground here. I knew the guy. He had, he had threatened pastors in the city, in our own city. He got out of the car. He had three Jesus stickers on the front windshield of his car. He had a big cross, a wooden cross, hanging around his neck. And you could see it because he had his button of a shirt undone to his navel to show how spiritual he is. You will see that a stony ground here will have lots of leaves and branches but little fruit. What he lacks inwardly, he will try and impress you with outwardly. There's nothing wrong with car stickers. There's nothing wrong with Christian t-shirts. But you'll find a stony ground here will have all the right jargon, have all the shirts, all the t-shirts. He'll just say everything right because he's trying to impress you with leaves and branches because he lacks inwardly. He'll have a big Bible. <laughs> he will lack inwardly so he'll send all the goodness that should have been going down into his soil up into the leaves now, I've lost my place. Where, what was the last scripture we went to? What? Mark 4. Oh, Colossians 4. Okay. Okay, turn to Colossians 4, verse 5.
Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 15. He said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or from figs from thistles? Even so, listen to it, every tree, every good tree bears good fruit. But a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. If you are soundly saved, you will not beat up your wife. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. If someone is a false convert, it can be seen by what they do. Lack of goodness, gentleness, meekness, a lack of love. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you will know them. Why should we know others and ourselves by our fruits? Well, listen to what Acts 20:29 20, says. For I know this that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among your own cells, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. From your own cells, one will ones will rise up. You see, wolves pick off the weak sheep. That's how wolves work. They come up, they see a flock of sheep, they look for the ones that are lagging behind, they go for the weak sheep. And if I was a pastor with my own church, which I'm not, I'm a pastor within a church but have an itinerant ministry. I would watch for wolves among the sheep. I'd watch for guys that came in and they were a little too close to those young girls in the youth group. I'd watch them, arm around, covering. I'd say, man, I've just been watching. I'd like you to keep away from the girls, okay? Mark them. Just keep an eye on them. I wonder if you've ever felt guilty when you were asked to follow up someone who gave their heart to Jesus and they backslid and you just felt so guilty and you said to yourself, man, I, I wish, it, wish I took around another seven boxes of follow-up or something. If I could, just could have followed them up more, they probably would have hung in there. Do you know that follow-up is not biblical? It's not biblical. I believe in discipling, I believe in feeding, I believe in nurturing, but not following new converts. Now by that I mean the modern conception of follow-up. When someone gives their heart to Jesus at a crusade or a meeting, and it's your job to go around a week later, knock on their door and say, excuse me, you made a decision. Could you come to your door? I can see you hiding under your bed. I mean, your job is to follow them up, and they don't want to talk to you, they don't want to know you, and you feel so guilty. Do you know that Jesus sent his lambs among wolves? He sent his lambs among wolves. Follow-up as we know it, is a sad testimony as to the confidence modern evangelism has both in its message and in the keeping power of God. You see, if God is the author, He will be the finisher of their faith. He is able to save to the uttermost them that come to God by Him. He is able to keep them from falling and present them faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. You won't have to follow up someone who is soundly saved. You'll have trouble keeping up with them. Luke 10 says Jesus sent His lambs among wolves. Why? Because he knew that the sunlight of tribulation, temptation, persecution would strengthen the genuine and expose the false. And it did. Judas Iscariot was never a Christian. So how do you know that? Here's a good clue. One of you is a devil, Jesus said. That's a good clue. <laughs> I got a friend, Winky Pratt, he's an itinerant minister. He's also got good blood. He's from New Zealand originally. But I heard Winky years ago. He ministered about Judas Iscariot. And he said, man, whenever I saw 
Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper, I'd look for Judas. He'd be the guy, the big ugly guy down the end with a big hooked nose and ringing hands down the end. Judas, Mr. Evil. It's kind of like Rasputin or something. That is so unbiblical. And he mentioned that. When he mentioned that in his teaching. It is so, Judas would have been the nicest guy, a good looking guy. Everyone trusted Judas. He was so trusted, he looked after the money. They all trusted Judas. I remember when a woman broke alabaster ointment and anointed the feet of Jesus. He, someone said, why wasn't the salt and the money given to the poor? Judas, he really cared for the poor. No, he didn't. The Bible says he was a thief. He looked after the money. He just loved his money. He was covetous. When Jesus said, one of you will betray me, they didn't say, ah, that's old hook nose down the end of the table. Yeah. Now, didn't I tell you? Hook nose. Yeah, I'm not surprised. No, it wasn't like that. Jesus said, one of you will betray me. They said, is it I, Lord? Is it me? He said, it's he who puts his hand in the dish with me. Judas did that. And then when he went out to betray him, they didn't say, yep, Judas. They thought he had gone to give money to the poor. See, he put on a good show, like the false convert puts on a good show. Lots of leaves and branches. But God knows his heart and he's given us clues so we can know his heart also. Colossians 4, verse 7. Look how Paul puts a seal of approval on certain people and he excludes certain people from a seal of approval. You see, when you are living in times where you could be thrown to the lions or burned at the stake, it really matters who you welcome into the faith. All my state shall Tychicus declare to you, who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. So Tychicus gets a good approval rating from Paul. Whom I have sent unto you to know the same purpose, or for the same purpose, that he might know your estate and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you? They shall make known to you all things which are done here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, salutes you. No seal of approval on Aristarchus. And Marcus, sister's son, uh, son, to Barnabas, touching whom you receive. If he comes to you, receive him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, for of the circumcision, these are only my fellow workers under the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you? As a servant. Look at Paul's seal of approval on different ones. He salutes you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may comfort, so that you may stand perfect and com complete in the will of God. For I bear him record that he has a great zeal for you, and them that are in high, at Laodicea and Hyapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, didn't need an introduction or approval. And Demas greets you. There was no seal of approval on Demas. And it's as though Paul looked at Demas and thought, man, I really don't know about you. I don't know if I can say if, if Demas comes to you, receive him. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, we see why. Demas has forsaken me, having, having loved this present world. So we've looked at the characteristics of a false convert. Now we're going to look at some of the characteristics of a genuine convert. In Matthew 13, verse 23, the Bible says, The good soil hearer is he who hears the word and understands it. As I said, this is the food of the schoolmaster. He knows he has sinned against God. He knows he has violated the law of a holy God. He becomes convinced of the law as a transgressor. He exercises repentance towards God. He exercises godly sorrow. He says, Against you and you only have I sinned. He puts his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He puts his hand to the plow. He doesn't look back. 
because he's fit for the kingdom. And it's all because of understanding. It's all because the law has done its work in acting as a schoolmaster. Matthew 13, 15 says, This people's heart has become gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and should understand with their hearts and be converted. And should understand with their hearts and be converted. How can there be repentance without understanding? Paul said, I had not known sin but by the law. And if a man doesn't know the sin against God, he will not exercise biblical repentance. Godly sorrow which works repentance. Finney said, I remark that the law is the rule and the only just rule by which the guilt of sin can be measured. There's no other measuring rod that God has given us. D.L. Moody said, This then is what God has given the law for, to show us ourselves and our true colors. The law is like a mirror. As we look into the perfect law of liberty, we say we're all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we go from the mirror of the law to the water of the blood of Christ to wash. The law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. You know, I, as a pastor, I have sat in, the, in meetings and I've sat up the front and, and seen from the platform the reaction of those who have come forward to make decisions under the voice of a modern evangelist. And I've watched psychological manipulation. I've seen so-called evangelists go for souls without even preaching Christ crucified. What they do is they teach on faith for 40 minutes and then suddenly in the middle of the teaching they say, let's just bow in prayer. I really feel God speaking and it seems so spiritual. There are ones here tonight, you need to give your heart to Jesus. I want you to slip up your hand with every eye closed and head bowed. No one's watching you. God bless you. I see all those hands. Let's everyone stand. We worship the Lord. We sing a hymn. Counselors come forward. And those who have raised your hands, I saw you lift your hand. And I want you to come to the front now. Give your life to Christ. The person comes up the front. Music's playing. The counselors kind of ease them up. And we could see the facial expressions on those who had come up. It was kind of, what am I doing up here? Psychologically manipulated. A counselor told me out the back. It was a local tea party. No one was weeping. There was no contrition. There was no repentance. It was a kind of, hey Bertha, what are you doing here? Good to see you, huh? Because it is not biblical evangelism. It's not turning the soil of the hearts using the law. The true convert sees that he sinned against God, cries, Woe is me, I'm undone. God be merciful to me, a sinner. And upon repentance, establishes himself on the foundation of God, which stands sure, having this seal. The Lord knows them that are his. And then according to Luke 8, verse 15, he brings forth fruit with patience. That's why the little plant didn't look very impressive on the top. Because underneath, all that energy was going into the root system. You can have two guys within your church. Both make decisions for Jesus. You kind of watch them, and there's one that's very impressive. Big Bible, lots of hallelujahs, lots of amens. He's witnessing. All those sorts of things are happening. He's buying this, he's buying that. He's got Spurgeon Tabernacle pulpit commentaries. He's just going great guns, then he backslides. What? What went wrong? The other guy is not very impressive at all. He just sits and listens. He has his Bible on his lap, and he's always taking notes. Huh? What's happening? This guy is sending his roots in deep. Closet prayer, returning things that he's stolen. He's sending his roots in quiet humility. He's bringing forth fruit that's going to remain. He grows in faithfulness, confession of sin, and obedience to the Word. And remember, if someone is a true convert, it doesn't matter how hot the sun gets. 
He's going to send his roots deeper and deeper and deeper. And a genuine convert, if he's thrown into a pit of a lions, angry, hungry lions, if he's genuine and he comes under immediate, intense sunlight of tribulation, he's not going to say, God, why did you let this happen to me? He's going to say, oh God, I know all things work together for good. I trust you in this. He's going to get on his knees and just yield closer to God. And my greatest growth as a Christian came with my wilderness experience. One month after I was saved, I went through depression. You wouldn't believe. It was a burnout time. The sun just came and just caused my leaves to wither and I drooped. But I sent my roots deep into God and drew moisture from the Word and found sustenance from the Word and yielded everything I had to God. That's why James 1 says, my brethren, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings forth patience. If you fall into trials, count it all joy. Paul says, Corinthians 7 verse 4, 2 Corinthians, I'm exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. What's he saying? He said, oh Lord, I know that you only move me as your plant into the sunlight when you think I need it. So I'm going to be rejoicing when you do that. God doesn't put us in the sunlight because he wants to burn us. 1 Peter 1, 6-7, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be. See, God won't chasten us unless we need it. If need be, you're in heaviness from manifold temptations. For the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, might be found to praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Your faith is more precious than gold. I called a friend of mine in New Zealand, he's a pastor, about a month ago, and he told me that he's got a church of about 150 people and they moved into an empty old jewelry factory where they used to make jewelry for many years. They cleaned the place up, swept it up, and they got this pile of dirt. And they said, what do we do with this? Someone says, don't throw it away. I know a little bit about this. Take that dirt to a gold refinery. That dirt yielded $8,500 worth of gold dust. The gold refinery says, give us your carpet. We want to burn it. So they did three and a half thousand dollars worth of gold dust in the carpet. You see, your faith is more precious than of gold that perishes. And when the heat comes to a Christian, it's only to produce in him that which is precious in the sight of God. Listen to Psalm 66 verse 10. For you, O God, have tried us. You have refined us as silver is refined. You have brought us into the net. You have laid affliction on our loins. Now notice who's doing all this. You, O oh God, have proved us. You have refined us. You brought us into the net. You laid affliction on our backs. You caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire. We went through water. But you brought us out into a rich place. God takes us. It's not, we blame the devil. It was the Holy Spirit that led Jesus, Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when a Christian comes under the heat of tribulation, it's only because he needs it. God wants us to grow. He doesn't take us through fire to burn us but to purify us. He doesn't take us through water to drown us but to wash us and cleanse us. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, But our light affliction which is but for a moment works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Affliction doesn't work against you if you're a Christian. For our light affliction which is but for a moment works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Saints, I feel so strongly about what I'm teaching. Why? Because as a new convert, I ran around getting decisions for Jesus from my friends. I, I would have got about 30 decisions, 28, 29 of them backslid. They were false converts. They fell away and suddenly I had bitter, 
backsliders on my hands. People I couldn't even witness to because of my zeal without knowledge. A woman came into my office once and she said, I came into this church about a year or two ago. I came under the sound of the gospel. Roman Catholic background. She knew she had sinned against God. As soon as she heard the gospel, she said, this is it. I know I'm a sinner. I need the Savior. She just went up to give her heart to Jesus. Genuine repentance. But she grabbed her husband and said, you're coming too. Up husband went. He gave his heart to Jesus. Big change in his life. Lots of branches. Lots of leaves for about a month. I mean, there was just a complete change. He was witnessing the people. had a big Bible. He was just going great guns. Suddenly, he backslid when a temptation came. He became very bitter. He became so bitter, the marriage split up. And that woman burst into tears and said, and I think it's all my fault. And I had to agree with her. I didn't say, yeah, it's your fault. But I had to say to her, well, it's true. And our zeal without knowledge, we can do more damage than good by pulling someone into a decision, decision when they're not left in the womb of conviction. Remember what Charles Finney said? Evermore, the law must prepare the way for the gospel. To overlook this in instructing souls is almost certain to result in false hope, the introduction of a false standard of Christian experience, and to fill the church with false converts. Time will make this plain. And saints, may God enable us to be true and faithful witnesses. To not water down or pervert the gospel because of the fear of man. And say, oh God, make me bold to preach His law, to prepare sinners to receive the message of grace. That they might be soundly saved and bring forth fruit to God, some 40, some 60, some 100 fold. Let's bow in prayer as we close. Father, we thank you for your goodness and foremostly we pray for those in our midst that maybe are questioning their faith, their salvation. Father, as they examine themselves to see if they're in the faith, if they're not, would you make it very clear to them, Lord, tonight. Let their conscience do its duty. And Father, we pray for each of us that are genuine. We know our own hearts. We know our consciences. We pray that you would cause us to live for you and to live for our neighbor. Make us bold. Give us the wisdom. Give us the will. Give us the way. Give us the words to say that which will cut sinners to the heart in the love of God and to pull them from the fire, hitting even the garments spotted by the flesh. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.